Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. A recent survey by Forrester revealed a stunning gap between public and private sector customer experiences. In it, 80% of the federal agencies listed received a rating of poor or very poor, compared to only 14% of the private sector companies included. At T-Tech Digital, we're passionate about reversing this trend. For the last four decades, we've been working hand-in-hand -hand with the most recognizable brands in the world, and now we're applying that experience to help federal high-impact service providers transform digital citizen experiences. Through award-winning partnerships, FedRAMP certified and patented technical solutions, and a proven roadmap for success, we are government agencies' best-kept CX secret. To learn more, visit cx.ttecdigital.com slash public sector. Hi, listeners. This is Colin Larson. This will be the last episode of The Buzz for 2022, so I wanted to take a look back at some of the big ideas we talked about this year. You'll be able to check out the episode notes for links to everything I'm talking about today. First, cryptocurrency. When the year opened, we were still very much in the hype cycle of crypto. During the Super Bowl in February, there were no less than four different commercials for crypto exchanges encouraging Americans to get in now on this exciting new technology before the rocket ship to the moon left them behind. There was a lot of institutional money being invested into the industry, Remember, this was before the Federal Reserve started tightening interest rates, so borrowing was still basically free. The crypto industry's market cap sat above $3 trillion in early 2022, largely without significant regulation at the federal level. In March, the Biden administration published an executive order that took a middle ground by acknowledging the financial risks posed by digital assets while still promoting the development of these technologies. Despite this, and follow-up statements from the Department of Treasury urging Congress to create a more comprehensive regulatory framework, no legislation was forthcoming. In April, we published an interview with Hillary Allen, a professor of law at American University and an expert on financial regulation and fintech. She has written extensively on the risks presented by crypto. Here's a clip from our interview where she talks about that. I think... Again, this goes back to legitimate criticisms of the financial system, you know, around 2008 and how that these are even more so in the DeFi world, right? So we've got no way. I mean, the point of finance used to be to finance real world enterprise, right? Building things and growing things and, you know, developing things, et cetera. And at some point, finance started to be finance for finance sake. Right? The, the, the profitability of the financial industry was the marker rather than the profit, you know, the, rather than broader economic growth. And so we've sort of, I think 2008 really illustrated that. But again, DeFi takes that to a whole new level. We really are in a situation where it's just profit, profit's sake. I mean, there's no, there's no end game of building something or, you know, growing something in the real world. Right now, it's just this entirely self-referential ecosystem. And, you know, I think with good reason, it's kind of been analogized to a casino. 
When I interviewed her, Professor Allen was very pessimistic about the future of crypto. I recall her saying that she felt sometimes like the Trojan seer Cassandra, making accurate predictions that no one believed. To her credit, she was absolutely right on multiple occasions. First, barely a month later, the $18 billion Terra ecosystem collapsed. This system was centered around something called an algorithmic stablecoin. A stablecoin is an asset pegged to a set value, like one U.S. dollar. Most stablecoins maintain this value by holding an equivalent amount of real assets in reserve. Think of it like the gold standard. So, in theory, if you have one U.S. dollar stablecoin, you could exchange that for one actual dollar, or another real asset also worth a dollar. Now, whether the organizations who issue these stablecoins are actually doing that is another matter. But an algorithmic stablecoin isn't backed by anything. Instead, the currency's peg is maintained through a series of automated financial transactions governed by smart contracts, which are essentially just pieces of code. The specifics are complicated, which is part of the problem. But the main idea is that if you were holding one U.S. Terra, the ecosystem's stablecoin equivalent of the dollar, there was no real-world asset behind that. This allowed the Terra ecosystem to mint new money extremely quickly, since no one had to buy reserve assets using real dollars. The value of the U.S. Terra was maintained by expanding and contracting the supply of the currency and by creating confidence that the automated algorithm that governed this process would hold in the event of unforeseen complications. The Terra developers did keep some assets in reserve to protect against failure, but these were largely other cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, so the risk was still there. In early May, a series of large withdrawals from the Terra ecosystem caused the crypto equivalent of a bank run. The peg to the U.S. dollar dropped at first by a little, and then a lot, as token holders desperately tried to exchange their U.S. Terra and get out. In the course of a week, the value of U.S. Terra, which remember is supposed to be $1, dropped below 10 cents. It never recovered. The whole ecosystem, which included borrowing and lending protocols and a host of other tokens, imploded. Billions of dollars vanished, with no compensation available to investors. And then last month, we saw yet another stunning collapse of a major crypto player, FTX, which paid for one of those Super Bowl ads I mentioned. The head of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, was also in charge of a crypto-focused hedge fund named Alameda Research, which many people have pointed out, is a pretty significant conflict of interest. Leaked documents published in early November showed that much of Alameda's reserve was held in the form of FTX's proprietary token, FTT, which is something they had minted out of thin air. It's not uncommon for crypto exchanges to create their own currency. This obviously gave the impression that much of Alameda, and by extension FTX's value, rested on shaky ground, causing another crypto bank run. FTX declared bankruptcy as its liquidity disappeared, making it unable to repay corporate debts. It later emerged that FTX had been lending customer deposits to Alameda to trade with, without customers' knowledge, which is very illegal. Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested on December 12th in the Bahamas and faces extradition to the United States for financial fraud. These catastrophes harken back to the early days of free banking in the U.S., pre-FDIC, when a dearth of federal regulation enabled risky lending and borrowing behavior that eventually culminated in the Great Depression. 
If something the scale of either the Terra or FTX collapse had occurred in traditional banking, it would have likely sent the U.S. economy into a tailspin. To have two major crashes in less than a year demonstrates how fragile the cryptocurrency economy is. Professor Allen has long held that these kinds of events are an inevitability in crypto. When we spoke, she was adamant that crypto should be kept walled off from the rest of the financial system for this very reason. And this year has only reinforced that view. She testified to that just last week in front of the Senate Banking Committee. I would like to make three points today. The first is that FTX's failure was not an isolated incident, but is symptomatic of many broader problems in the crypto industry. FTX is just the latest in a series of major crypto industry failures, failures of centralized crypto intermediaries like Celsius and failures of DeFi offerings like Terra Luna. These failures arose in large part because of a feature that is unique to the crypto industry. Crypto assets can be made up out of thin air. When assets can be made up out of thin air, that generates leverage that makes the whole system more vulnerable to booms and busts. When assets can be made up out of thin air, they can also be used to obscure financial realities, as was done with FTX's FTT tokens, which were used as collateral for the FTX customer assets loaned to Alameda. How can you have any reliable check on the valuation of an asset with no productive capacity behind it? The attestations and proofs of reserves offered by the crypto industry are poor substitutes for rigorous and independent audits. Such an environment is highly conducive to fraud. Sam Bankman-Fried may have engaged in good old-fashioned embezzlement, as it was put yesterday, but the embezzlement was able to reach such a scale and go undetected for so long because it was crypto, shrouded in opacity, complexity, and mystique. Given that the value of Bitcoin is now about 60% of what it was this time last year, and with rising interest rates heralding a possible recession, the future of crypto is uncertain. But based on what happened this year, that might not be such a bad thing. Shifting gears, I wanted to call attention to the mini-series we produced in partnership with the Office of Financial Innovation and Transformation at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. Very special thanks to our hosts for that series, Jezreel Lopez, Cindy Good, and Jacqueline French, and to the director of the Office of Financial Innovation and Transformation, Bernadette Goodwin. This was a rare opportunity to hear directly from federal employees who are thinking critically about modernizing our government to better achieve agency mission outcomes and provide a better experience both for federal employees and the American people. There were a few key themes I noticed that I think bode well for the future. First, digital transformation is more about people than technology. This is something that leaders from every agency featured in the series talked about. New IT infrastructure is only a tool, and there are a whole host of supporting structures around that tool that determine whether it will be successful or not. Do you have buy-in from the workforce? What are the processes governing the use of that tool? Is it ultimately going to empower humans to do their work better? The technology field is sometimes vulnerable to the solution in search of a problem. By that I mean, people can get excited by something cool and shiny without considering whether it makes sense for them to use it. We hear about AI or IoT-based technologies being revolutionary, but that doesn't mean that an agency needs to implement some cutting-edge tech to achieve its goals. The greatest asset we have is people, not computers. This is something I think the miniseries grasps. It's why so many agencies are focused on developing a more effective workforce and creating cultures of innovation of constantly trying new projects on a small scale, of leadership in service of employees. None of these things require an expensive new procurement effort, but they will transform the way agencies fulfill their mission. 
Once again, check out the episode notes for a link to that series. A related idea we've been thinking about this year, and one that connects directly to the president's management agenda, is customer experience. That is, the holistic experience that a person has while interacting with the government. This is everything from the process to register a patent, to accessing benefits payments, to receiving health care at a VA facility. Too often, Americans have to fill out the same paperwork over and over again, navigate unclear bureaucratic hurdles, or facilitate interaction between siloed agencies in order to receive critical services that they have a right to. The Biden administration has recognized that customer experience is a key component to building trust with the public. Every positive interaction between a federal, state, local, or tribal entity and an individual is a brick in the foundation of good government. A key component of this is service design, something I had a chance to discuss with Eddie Hartwig, former deputy administrator with the U.S. Digital Service. I'll let him explain more. Like the concept of Service design is literally the concept, or is actually the concept of, of putting forward a better service, one that is considering all the opinions and all the people involved. And so, you know, when you go, you, know, I was, I, you may have heard me use this example before, but if you think about the DMV, right, everybody has an experience with the DMV. Um, and if you go to the DMV and you take your number and there are 99 people ahead of you in line, right, and there are 20 civil servants behind the counter and there are 20 booths but only two civil servants are sitting in two of the booths, right? And you cannot help as a human being to think, what is going on here? Like, why can't those 18 people go to those 18 additional booths and we could get out of here, you know, so much faster. And like, that is a very natural like reaction and there's nothing wrong with that. The act of service design is the act of going behind the counter and talking to the people that are behind the counter and asking why this is happening. And quite frankly, what you usually find is that the people behind the counter are just as frustrated as the people in line. They're thinking if only the 18 of us could go to those 18 windows, we could do this twice as fast or we could do this like infinitely faster, but somebody's budget constrains them from, from working at the window. Somebody doesn't have the training. Somebody doesn't have access to the system. Someone is a contractor and so they have a different status. You know, there's some uh, bureaucratic rule uh, that comes from an older law that says that only a certain number of people can do a thing. And quite frankly, like, you know, the, you're missing a cable on one of the computers and the scanner doesn't work on another. And there are all of these reasons. And so when we go and we, we try to find out what it is that the service that we're trying to deliver and not only what it is, but how are we going to deliver it so that everybody benefits? And when you can deliver value on both sides of the counter, right? Like that's really when... when you can start building institutional trust. One thing I'd like to note, which I heard discussed at our CX Summit this year during a panel on equitable and inclusive service, is that, unfortunately, government CX is not isolated from politics. There are limits to what good service design can accomplish in the face of policy that does not promote transparency, accessibility, and accountability. We have real historical and modern examples of policy that creates, even unknowingly and without malice, disparate impact that confers unfair disadvantage to some Americans on the basis of class, race, gender, religion, age, or disability. Consider, for example, the COVID Paycheck Protection Program. These critical loans were distributed through existing certified lenders, banks, credit unions, etc., with the goal of quickly providing struggling American businesses with liquidity. However, we now have extensive data showing that small businesses, particularly in minority neighborhoods, 
were not able to access PPP funds with the same success and speed as large businesses. This is due to a series of interactions between how banks and lenders reached customers and which kinds of banks, lenders, and businesses are most common in different neighborhoods. Neighborhoods which unfortunately tend to be largely segregated in the United States. While the purpose of the Paycheck Protection Program was not to favor large businesses and white-owned businesses, that was the unfortunate result. Important aid that was sorely needed by Main Street and entrepreneurs of color was given overwhelmingly to large corporations, those who needed it the least, exacerbating the racial wealth gap and overall wealth inequality during the pandemic. Brookings has published more information on this, which I've linked to in the episode notes. So we know that without good data, we can't ensure that policy is truly serving all Americans. This is also an important aspect of CX and why service delivery needs to be iterative. When we can evaluate the impact of a policy, agencies can show policymakers where the gaps are and how they can be addressed. This is also why a diverse workforce is important. How can we possibly design the best service for a given population without understanding how that population lives? I'll end with some encouraging lessons in government service design from elsewhere in the world. Estonia. I had the opportunity to interview the Baltic nation's former CIO, Tavi Kotka, and an ambassador from the country's e-Estonia briefing center, Carmen Rall. They both refer to Estonia as a digital society, where the efficient provision of personalized services extends to both the public and private sectors. Every Estonian has a secure, personal identifier that connects all their information across different database records in different national agencies. This means that when, say, the tax board needs information from the population registry, they can use the unique identifier to match records and request the correct data. So Estonians basically only have to provide information once, and after that, there's a record of that piece of data somewhere in a government system linked to them that other agencies can access. This system also applies to medical, financial, and education records, so private companies can interact with only the information they need to provide services. This means no filling out tax forms every year. No new medical history forms when you switch doctors. The Estonian government has even started proactive benefits programs, where the government determines eligibility for you and automatically deposits your benefits into your bank account without you having to lift a finger or fill out any applications. Importantly, Estonians have control over their own data, so they can block access when they want and can also see who has viewed their information. The country hands out fines and even prison sentences for improper use and access of a citizen's personal protected information. So here's a clip from Carmen explaining how this got started, and then a clip from Tavi explaining why it makes so much sense for the country to pursue this. So maybe first thing to mention is um, to understand why digitalization of public sector services was so necessary for us is because if you look at our map, our country is very, very tiny, but our population is even tinier. So just 1.3 million people live in Estonia. So it means that especially if you go outside of Tallinn, our capital, or Tartu, the second biggest city, odds are that you're either going to end up in a forest somewhere or uh, in, a, in a small town or a village that's not so densely populated. So it's nearly impossible for us to provide equal access to public sector services in the analog form. 
even though it's impossible, it's it's not really an excuse because everybody has to have equal access, right? So so this is why we started looking towards digitalization as an as a way out already in the 90s. And and the second thing was that uh, well digital literacy skills, they're part of it. So if you have all those digital solutions, but people don't know how to use it, or they don't have good internet connection to access it, it's, uh, the, the purpose has been defeated, right? So, so what we started doing is we started tackling all those issues at, at once. You always have political uh, debate over it, and sometimes it takes time, like to convince. So it's not just like, oh, it's just engineers came together and like everybody was, was saluting. But yes, uh, it, there was a point where politicians understood that, uh, um, uh, like, digitally well-designed service can get them votes. So taxes is something everybody is related and. Uh, like it goes back to 2004. Uh, if you can exchange your standing in the queue and like hustling with like uh, filling those forms, like uh, I mean, uh, without uh, like, and then suddenly the government says that, like, according to our understanding, and then we have pulled information from several private and public databases, and we think that you should pay this amount of money. And uh, statistically, like around 98% of people declare their taxes digitally and 95 of that 98 doesn't change anything, anything in the, on the declaration, which means that, ah, oh, I mean, you say that I have to pay that much. Okay, I'll pay. So uh, it becomes extremely efficient. And then according to the OECD, Estonian tax system and the way how we collect taxes is the most efficient among all those OECD countries. So we spend uh, like like uh, the least money to collect one tax dollar. I highly recommend listening to both episodes. They tell a compelling story about how to create true citizen-centered services that are easy, transparent, and secure. So thanks so much for listening to The Buzz this year. We've got lots more planned for 2023, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all the information about ActIAC's events for next year at www.actiac.org. Happy holidays.